With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. And I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the NBN Entrepreneurship and Leadership Channel. As well as new content, we are making available selected podcasts recorded by our hosts prior to joining the NBN family. This is one of them. And so this podcast may refer to itself with a different name and identity. Enjoy the show. The center of innovation is here. And you know, this is part of the message of Project Cashmere of this whole podcast, that there's something happening here which is beyond just good value for money. Like I said, having the vision is great, but the key is these concrete initiatives that drive it at the ground level. I think Paulina owes people who are really, they do extremely well with very limited resources and we can take advantage of the really low costs here. You know, Poland is the land of opportunity, and I, and I like to say the East is the new West because you always used to go West in history to find more adventure and danger and prove yourself. There are some good things beginning to happen here in Krakow, but we've got a very long way to go. Hello, Project Kashmir's listener. It's May 2016, and it's Richard Lucas here to welcome you to the fifth episode of season two of our podcast. Today, we'll talk to a very successful entrepreneur, Kimon Fontakidis. Kimon is known as the CEO and founder of both PMR Market Intelligence Company and Argos Multilingual, one of the world's leading language service providers, both based here in Krakow. In this episode, you'll learn how to hire the best, how to grow sales, how to stay competitive while expanding, and much more. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by James Cook Media. This is a company that I founded that helps businesses do world-class marketing to help their world-class products reach the global marketplace. I have assembled a world-class team of digital marketing experts here in Poland that I personally trained to help you scale your product and get it to the English-speaking market. Learn more about us and what we can do for your business at jamescook.com. Also, check out our traffic and conversion meetups that I run with Eva Vysotska of Good Tribe Consulting, where you can learn all about the latest marketing strategy and techniques that are being developed here, cutting edge on Google Campus Warsaw with Eva and myself, James Cook Media. We do the marketing so you can focus on your product.
Hello again, Project Kajimej listener. My name is Sam Cook, your founder and co-host of Project Kajimej. As always, with my co-host Richard. Richard, how are you today? Very well, thanks, and good afternoon wherever you are, or depending on what time of day it is. Good morning or good night. <laughs> Richard, with his trademark opening. Richard, uh, who is the guest today? You were very excited when you called me that our next guest was available. So why such the big deal? Uh, well, it's extremely exciting when my business partner of the last fifteen or seventeen years, Kimon Fontakidis, is available because I have been watching the tremendous progress the business he founded made over the years and we also have another business PMR together but he's the CEO of Argos Multilingual I think we first met on a small side street in the center of town called Sarego back in 1999 or 2000 and uh, over the years he's built up one of the most successful businesses I'm associated with so but I think it'd be much more interesting for Kimon to introduce himself and tell us how he ended up in Poland and what he's doing here than to have me do an inaccurate version so over to you Kimon thanks Richard. Yeah, so basically I've been in Krakow now since 93, so that's, uh, what is that, it's about... 20, 22 years. Okay, yeah, because you always have that on the year, just a couple of years here before me. I initially was just teaching English in Slovakia. My dream was actually to live in Prague. I never got there. When I just visited Krakow over a weekend, and uh, I sort of fell in love with the city. But I was always entrepreneurial growing up. I remember selling uh, t-shirts door-to-door at one point in college. I don't know if you've ever done door-to-door sales. That's true sales, actually, when you not on a door and you say, hey, you want to buy something? That's actually real sales. But anyway, so I ended up coming to Krakow. I was interested in Eastern Europe. I, I thought there was going to be a lot of opportunity here. I sort of fell in love with the city. And I, so I was just teaching English and I was trying to figure out what, what can I do? With and I started calling up all these American companies. I got a list from the consulate. And it was funny back then. I don't know, Richard, if you remember, but back then, uh, I, you know, if you called up an American company and speak English, because I didn't really speak any Polish back then, you'd be like put through right away to like the CEO or the country manager because nobody could speak English. So on that particular occasion, I actually got through to the country manager of Donnelly Printing. It's now Donnelly. It was then Polish American Printing Association. And I was looking for a job and he's like, what do you do? I'm like, I teach English. He's like, well, come on in, meet me. And so I went in there and he asked me to, English teacher, I've got like 50 or 60 people that need to learn English. I basically set up a course for the guy. I hired some teachers and the guy was from Texas and I remember his Texas drawl. And, but I massively, massively overcharged and I sort of charged him American rates. And it took me about, they say, I think I had that job for like two months before the accountant figured out that charging American rates. But actually back then, the amount of money I made on that, I remember I'd like, I took a vacation, I went to Turkey, I didn't work for a while. But uh, anyway, so I started doing that and then I ended up, I, I learned the language, getting into translation. I actually, through that actually job, I needed to actually, the funny thing is I had to make that business legal. I had to invoice that Donnelly. So I, I went to the boss at the place where I was teaching. I basically needed to legitimize the business and I had to get a, an invoice. And so through that, I ended up meeting Professor Yanni Yoshina, who was a sociology professor here. And he was running the foundation that had those English courses. And he was like super impressed that like there's this like young kid. I was like, I don't know, 22 at the time. And I was like, all this money was coming through his accounting. So after that, he actually, he was interested in me and he sort of offered me a job. That's how I actually founded PMR, which is uh, business publications and market research business here in Krakow. And the translation business, Argos, actually, that's I was just using that. I learned how to translate just to pay the bills. So that's basically how I got started. One of the things that's interesting is your philosophy to business. And, and prior to this interview, I was sending Sam a few links back to articles you wrote way back. Is And anyone doing this, if you Google Fontakidis and Poland, there's only one of you, I think. <laughs> and there was one about price being the four-letter 
a word. And one of the, there's some interesting features about the characteristics of the Polish market in terms of how easy it is to sell here, how easy it is to sell abroad, and what our advantage was compared to most of the other translation companies that were going after the local market. Yeah, so basically I learned early on it was very difficult to do business for me in Poland. It really was because in the translation business, back then if you opened up uh, Panorama Firm, that was the sort of like guide to all the businesses. You'd find like tons and tons of translation companies there. So they were just basically differentiating on price. It was really very difficult and quality was non-existent. Uh, this was back in 2000. Actually, Richard, this was like around after you invested in the company. I used that investment to hire some people and that was really the moment when we sort of really started to internationalize the business. Before that, I was like putting leaflets into our, you know, PMR newsletter and actually was doing business to, with like foreign companies in Poland. Once we got outside of Poland, the margins were massive and the clients really cared about quality and technology became a really important factor. So very, very early on, I learned that there was really no market for these services. I mean, there is a, obviously there's a market for these services in Poland but it's not nearly as lucrative as it is outside of Poland. Sure, many of you are listening have no idea what the global localization translation market is like. And, you know, if you could describe what the big players are like, giving the example of SDL, because it was the fact that you had a client then called SDL that got me really interested in investing. Well, the funny thing about this industry is that as we talk about these big companies, SDL is probably one of the, I don't know what it is, it's a top five company. It's publicly traded in the UK. It's a very, very fragmented industry. It's not like people know the name SDL or the, the biggest companies called Lionbridge. People don't really know these names. And I think that's a huge advantage. Like I'm often in the States and that's where I focus a lot of my sales energy actually is in the US. And, and a lot of companies, they don't know the difference between the biggest company, which would be Lionbridge and Argos, which is our company, which we're probably, we're a top 50 global company. We're not small, but that's a very nice thing about the industry actually. One of the features and interesting things is that a lot of people think of Central Eastern Europe or Krakow or Kashmir as being like the land of opportunity looking for new markets to open up. But the, in fact, the advantage of being here wasn't to do with the local market being undersupplied. It was something completely different. Also, maybe you could say something about the way you hire people and talent and your attitude to people, because although many people come to Poland for the talent here, but a lot of your senior people aren't actually Polish. So yeah. something about... The the advantages and the disadvantages of being in right. business from a well, human. The funny thing is, I it was a I can't remember the expression I have when you do a reverse offshore. Is I'm actually in the process of onshoring right now, which is sort of funny because you get the concept of offshoring, which is basically move production costs to a lower cost. We set up the business here in Poland. We actually started off in a low cost, so actually we're moving the business now onshore. Basically, the first thing I really have to say: there's so much fortune. In, in my story, and that will often be the case in a lot of successful business stories, one of the fortunate things was actually being based in Krakow. When I came here, I was just, as I said, a 20-something-year-old kid that liked to, you know, I was like, oh, it seemed like a cool place to party at the time. But it turned out to be a really nice strategic location. I mean, there's tons of universities here. It's very technical. And the result is that thanks to that, and I had access to really, really great people here. So we had a, a core team here that could produce the service. But you have to remember, I was just a kid who set up a company. And actually, this industry is quite sophisticated. At, one, at some point, I realized I'm not really able to develop this business unless I go out and get some real experience, basically, in the business. And I do have currently at Argos quite a few senior level people that are actually from the industry, which come with a huge amount of experience working in the bigger companies. And that's obviously allowed us 
to combine the best of both worlds. So we're here with this lower cost machine of really top talent here in Krakow. And then we're able to go out and project ourselves and compete with all the other companies in the US and Western Europe. Actually, one thing we didn't do at the start of this interview, which probably some of the listeners now are beginning to wonder, is what does Argos Multilingual actually do? Because quite often when people think of translation, they think of menus in restaurants or signs in hotel rooms, which people day-to-day meet a translation company and see a badly translated menu. What are the primary areas of activity for Argos at the moment? That's absolutely true. And you could ask anybody at Argos and in any other translation company, very often and like I'll say, oh yeah, I run a translation company and people will say, oh, how many languages do you speak? And like they immediately assume that I'm actually doing translations myself. It's hard to imagine that there's such a big market out there. But if you think about it, a translation is at the heart of globalization and any company that wants to, to get outside of its borders will need to translate. And, you know, there's so many, many different forms of translation and ways you can translate. And obviously, you know, it's obviously best to specialize. So we actually specialize in manufacturing. That's one uh, vertical that we specialize in, and that would be, you know, like heavy machinery. One of our biggest clients is John Deere. So we do big fat tractor manuals, which are actually quite technical and complicated. So those are very nice things to translate. We also do sciences. So a lot of medical devices, stuff you plug into people, stuff where quality is very important. You want to make sure you get the on, off, in, out, correct, and things like that. And also we're quite heavy into the sort of IT. So that would be like software localization as well. And what's interesting is that while we do translations. Actually, we don't have any translators working for us full-time in-house. I mean, that is a fully outsourceable service that we buy, actually. So we are adding a lot of value to the process. And there's quite a lot of technology involved when you're a bigger company and you have a lot of content. And that's sort of where we help out. We help companies optimize the process because it can get very complicated. If you can imagine, there can be tons of files. How do you keep track of it all? How do you make sure that you don't translate stuff that you've already translated? So we've ended up being quite a technology sort of based company. That's sort of a differentiator between what people would call like a translation agency and like a localization firm. I think the fact that we use technology is one of our differentiators. Yes, when I'm trying to explain this business to people who don't understand at all, I just give the example of a screen on a machine that even if someone can translate, how do they get inside the machine? And increasingly the interface with the client is or the user is via a screen, right? Right, exactly. That's actually a very good example, Richard, because that's a typical localization problem. And if you think about a screen, I mean, think about a mobile screen. There's all kinds of problems with getting characters and size limitations in there. As you can imagine, it's interesting, but like language expands. Like if you go from English into German, there's like a 30% expansion rate right there in, in terms of the characters. So that creates all kinds of problems if you don't prepare. And that's really another area that we sort of help out with. It's called internationalization consulting. And what we do is we'll go in with developers, people who are working on software, and we'll sort of show them and train them actually as to the issues that they could face if they actually want to then later translate their software. So you really do need to be aware of the translation problem before you develop a product. And that's particularly true, as you say, when there are screens, actually. Yes. And one thing I'd like to move on to, like every business has got a sales and marketing process. And when we first got to know each other, there was a lot of things to do with PMR, to do with search engine optimization. You had blog posts with uh, Argos keyword rich blog posts. It's a content-based marketing way before it was popular. And over the years, there were trade fairs in places like Barcelona, Shanghai. You were saying the other week about how you spent a lot of time in front of people who never ended buying anything and you're cutting back the number of salespeople and 
and also bringing acquisitions into the picture as a way to get new clients. Kimon, I just had an experience around what you're talking about and I'd like to get your feedback on it. I was working on a website for local Polish clients and it's the first foreign website I've done and I just decided to write the copy uh, in English and build all the pages and design them all and then I had a college student translate it for me and it didn't end so well. So. <laughs> Exactly. There's a million stories like that. <laughs> well, the client just came back to me, I mean, you know, very, very happy with the design, the development, and said, it looks like a five-year-old wrote this Polish. Right. <laughs> and it's, it's, it's nothing against the guy who did the translation because, right. you know, really smart guy, incredibly smart in marketing and all kinds of stuff. But what I realized is translation is a very, very specific skill. And also Polish, a little bit like maybe German, seems to have more space on the page. So we have to account for that. We have to account for font inside of the servers that we're having to upload. I mean, there's just so many little technicalities. I wish I would have known about your company two weeks ago. Right. So. I would have been happy to help out. But it's interesting how often uh, we get approached with little stuff. Translation can be anything, basically, from like a CV or a menu or something like that. That's actually been a challenge. How do we manage the noise? I think a lot of businesses actually have that issue because really, if you go out and do everything, you end up doing nothing. Well, that's what I'm finding right now with this project is giving it to my project manager and he came back to me and said that our team member who made the translation didn't satisfy the client. And I think, Richard, I probably gave it to another company you're invested in. I think there's not a company in Krakow aside from maybe mine and a few others that you haven't invested in, but it was Turbo Translations. They're doing a great job on it, but still all the things that you're talking about, I've had to learn the hard way on the first no, project. It is something that a lot of people aren't aware of and they don't think about it. It's like, why not just use Google? I think Google has a place. But if something's going on your website, obviously that's going to require a different level of attention because that's client-facing and that's sort of representing who you are. But in the business, we have something called gisting. You can imagine if a law firm has a big case or let's say a big mergers and acquisition and they're doing, it's an international case, they get flooded with like tens and thousands and hundreds of thousands of documents. And a lot of times just to decide what to translate they can use stuff like Google and stuff like that. I mean, they just need to get the idea. They need to get the gist. Is this worth translating or not? So there are different levels. And obviously, that's the absolute basic level is using automatic translation. If you're doing something that's client-facing, if it's showing up on a website, if it's actually on a screen, I mean, that's when you're in an app or something like that. You know, that's where language becomes extremely important. And there's not a whole lot of it, but it's really important that it's well done because that's how people perceive the product. I want to come back to this. I'm glad, Sam, that you've had the experience of a... I'm not glad you had the, the experience of a translation project going wrong because... I, <laughs> I appreciate the sentiment, Richard. I'm glad that you're able to identify with the problem that Argos is solving. And another business I am involved in, Unicard, I remember the CEO there, Tomasz Bednarski, wanted to help me and said he had some potential work for a small electronic door opening piece of kit that had a screen. And Kevin had to intervene to stop his sales guys being nice to being, sort of being courteous and the courteous message was, we are not interested in right. you, you as a type of business. And just to finish, tie up on that one, this is the fun part of being in business with Richard. You know, Richard is, has awesome ideas and he's, he's actually a fountain of ideas actually, but you know, and he knows everybody in the company, he's very accessible. And, but you know, if he sends them a message to somebody in the company, He's one of the owners of the company. So my fear is like, I have to like, it's like damage control. Oh, Richard sent the, the sales guy this message. I have to tell the sales guy, no, 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 hold on a second. This, you know, we were going to do what's, you know, what's best for the company. And this is probably not, you know, this, because they would, they just wanted to the help out of, very often they'll want to help just out of, 
out of being nice, but that is something that I had to manage as a result of that. I wanted to say, well, actually, there's a number of lessons to learn. One, if you are a shareholder in a business, it's very good to be aware that, that your message, you can be quite disruptive, and Kimon's quite good at stopping my interventions causing damage, but how your attitude to sales has evolved over the years, because I think you know, you've always been strong on sales, and I think it's really interesting that every entrepreneur listening to this should be interested in. Yeah, I was a door-to-door salesman. I mean, like, I am a sales-oriented person. Let's actually be honest. There's not that many things I can do. Uh, and, and in particular, and as your company grows, I find that more and more that the places where I can add value and actually make a positive contribution are, are fewer and fewer. So, you know, everybody likes to feel good about themselves. So I obviously look for things that I can do. So originally it was... One word is spray and pray. The other word is you just think, well, if you just work hard enough, you go out there and you knock on enough doors, a certain percentage of the business is going to trickle in and, and stuff like that. But I think that's quite a traditional sales model of salespeople that are going out and doing stuff. And then if they're getting, if they can set up meetings, then a more senior person can go. And I think that's sort of a traditional sales model. And basically, that's the way we were doing things. It's hard work. And from time to time, you, you land a big account. And most of the time, you don't. But then we actually acquired a company and we doubled in size. And that was, it was a company in the US. It was actually one of our suppliers. But that really opened my eye. And just through that acquisition process, fortune shone upon me. But the size, the way to be able to grow so much so fast. And then here I was before, I'm just, I was reflecting on all the effort it took to get any kind of growth before. It was just this massive slog to get, to just grow one account at a time. It sort of opened my eyes to, you know, maybe this is applicable to every business. But right now we sort of shifted our business strategy a bit. And we said, you know what, we're not going to do that army of salespeople and knocking on tons of doors. Now we do sales, obviously. We have all of our clients and, and we do what we call a Account management, basically, strategic account management. So we try within the organizations that we currently work with to try to get more business. We try to get referrals. We try to look at other organizations that compete with, uh, with our clients. And that's the way we're developing new business sort of organically. But from rather than having this huge focus on new business, I'm actually just really starting this year making a shift and I'm going to look at more acquisition opportunities because I just think the ROI on that is just way better. In terms of not saying things, actually, this leads into something else on my list, which is about company culture and transparency that I think the way you run the business is very interesting. But one of the values is transparency. But it's one of the things I've noticed is that the way things work at Argus has been quite different to a lot of businesses, particularly you know, traditional Polish businesses and I'd be really interested if you could say what you think the most important features of the of the way you run the businesses and your attitude to company culture what it means well when you say transparency there's that's there's lots of different aspects to that but when you say transparency I'm a like a, <laughs> this is gonna sound funny I don't believe in lying and I think life is much easier when you tell the truth and I don't like having versions of the truth and one of the things I really didn't like or never particularly liked is gossip in my opinion the best way to combat people gossiping about the company and where it's going and what it's doing is to provide as much information as possible. So, and the truth is, as I mentioned, we brought in a lot of senior people, you know, over the last, let's say, five years or so. And I think for them even, and these are people coming from the U.S. and Western Europe, even for them, it was quite surprising what level of transparency we have in the company. Because I'm ready to share, this is how much we made, this is how much we sold, this is what we're going to do. For me, transparency is simplicity. 
Actually, I just like to keep things simple. And the easiest way to do that is actually just to tell the truth and just tell it like it is. The funny thing is, though, even now, you'll even find when we do our annual surveys that some people will say, oh, communication can be improved and stuff like that. So, you know, as hard as we work at that, it's still something that you can always get better at. So, and it's not always only transparency. Well, I've always tried to imagine, okay, if I wanted to work in a company, what would I want that company to be like? And for me, obviously, I would hate to be micromanaged. I would like to have as much freedom as possible in my job to do, you know, to make decisions and to be creative. And that's to try to kind of culture we try to create. And I think that's the kind of culture we have. Uh, obviously, we want it to be a culture where good people want to work. And, those, and then everything around that that you do is you maintain that, basically. Yeah, if you go on the Argos Multilingual blog, there's, I think there's something about people and great people, and it's a blog split into three blog posts. And obviously, you've said from the point of view of the, the member of the team, the staff member, you think about what the company would want to be like. But if you think about the sort of people you want to hire, what are the most important things you're looking for? That's a hard question because obviously, it's so dependent on the position and stuff like that. And that's something that shifted over time as well. I used to be, and this comes back to the like, I want to say laziness, but part of the nice thing of having money and having a more successful and established company is you can solve some of your problems with hiring more experienced people. There would be attributes that I would be looking for in people. I'd say that now experience has become, I'm in a position where now I can actually try to get the best possible qualified person for a job. But having said that, general things are there are obviously there are some like universal things about a person friendly and fun um, obviously that's not always going to be the case but I think tolerant is a big thing obviously that's not something you can always you do the best you can in interviews but I think we do have a very tolerant culture though I'll say that actually at Argos I think that we have been successful about that if you're asking the question of what are the key attributes unfortunately at the end of the day I think at this point it's you know are you the best possible person qualified to do this whatever job we're hiring for and if you want to learn what the key elements of running a business are, how automation is changing the world, and why we should be careful when we use the word competitive in the Polish market context, you should stay tuned after these short messages from our partners. Today's podcast is sponsored by Innovation Nest. They help companies go from local to global. Innovation Nest provides the most innovative B2B software startups with feedback, networking, and most importantly, investment to help them become global success stories. Here's how Innovation Nest's co-founder and managing partner, Piotr Willem, describes it. We at Innovation Nest, we are only about this product that are global. They are not designed for a single market. And I think that it is a founding idea of Innovation Nest that local mindset, it, is, it was a bottleneck for, for, for Polish uh, entrepreneurs. Our idea is if you want to build something, you have to be the best in the world, not the best in Krakow or the best in Poland. Do you want your company to become a global success? Check out their website, innovationnest.co, and sign up for their next SaaS meetup. Want to invest? Learn their success stories and make sure that you have the chance to be their next success. Today's episode is sponsored by Google Campus Warsaw. Google Campus Warsaw is a place to develop your startup. Google Campus is the fifth Google Campus opened across the world, and they provide Warsaw startup community and the whole Central Eastern European community with a place to work together, meet investors, and grow your business. Here's what the head of Google Campus Warsaw, Rafał Patetsky, told me about their project. 
Each campus around the world has the same mission to support the local startup ecosystems, to support the local startup communities and to enable the next generation of entrepreneurs to learn, to connect and to build companies that hopefully will change the world. In terms of our approach and the way we work, we have the cafe area, that this is where the networking starts with the fast internet access, a event space area where anybody can attend events. All of them are for startups, acceleration programs that companies are fine-tuning their minimum viable products or fine-tuning their go-to-market strategies. In December, we had a campus exchange program in Warsaw where we have invited startups from across Central and Eastern Europe to join our program to learn how to globalize their ideas in Poland, our mission that we have defined is to create new brands for the region, for Central and Eastern Europe, as a startup brand. We want to bring this startup knowledge and we want to popularize that knowledge by supporting the ecosystem all across Central and Eastern Europe. Do you want to learn more about Google Campus Warsaw? Visit their website campus.co forward slash Warsaw and learn more about their programs for entrepreneurs and the startup community events in the campus. Sticking with culture, there's an issue, an interesting, the meeting we were meant to be having now was to do with corporate social responsibility, although you came up with a different term, which I'd never heard before, which is personal social responsibility. It's something we've been talking about for a while now. I think it's really interesting to you know, share what your attitude to CSR, corporate social responsibility is, and what you think is important for you personally and what the company what the company does about it, because I think it's a bit unusual and interesting. Argos, again, was like everybody else. We would give money to charity. We'd a better year, we'd give more money. Less year, we'd still give money. And yeah, we would just give money to charity. That was our corporate social responsibility. But I felt like I would like to do more than that, basically. And I always felt like the most valuable thing you give, actually, is your time. So, you know, within Argos, I sort of set up a group and we sort of explored what could we possibly do. So we contacted a couple orphanages. Well, we actually contacted one orphanage in Kazimierz. And then another organization called Shimaka. I don't want to see their orphanages because they're sort of like little families that help kids that have various backgrounds and for legal reasons they can't be with their parents. We were trying to see what we can do with them and basically we decided let's just hang out with these kids. So we started just doing various different events, simple stuff. Well, I think we started out even just like hanging out with them, having ice cream, trying to speak English, teaching them English. And then we did sort of beach volleyball. We've done rock climbing. We've done lots and lots of cool stuff. And, and the nice thing about this is, well, there's lots of things. I mean, first of all, obviously, it's nice for the kids. You get to know the kids and you just feel that, you know, you hope that time, maybe you can, something can rub off and you can in some way help them and change their lives. But the really interesting was then the thing I didn't foresee is the effect it would have in the company. Actually, the, cause I was just thinking, okay, let's just try to be helpful. Let's just try to do more. That's really what the goal behind it was. But the flip side, what actually happened was I found that a lot of people in the company were proud that we were doing this. Like even people that never participated in these events would talk about it. They associated themselves with the company that was doing like cool stuff, hanging out with people from the company. I guess up until now, most of the events you would do would be sort of, there's always like seems to be drinking involved, right? You go out and you, you, you could do fun stuff, but there'd always be sort of drinking involved. And I really liked the fact that this was just sort of a very wholesome event and you actually hung out with 
different people. It was sort of very integrating the, the people that are that were participating in the company. So there was like this whole other side of this idea that ended up being really positive. I remember way back being involved in a company that you tried to help out with that failed miserably, Procom Studio, and they were doing corporate social responsibility at the time they went bust. And I remember writing a very bitter blog post about the first responsibility of a company is to make a profit because if you can't pay your bills. And another thing, there was a survey from one of the chambers of commerce saying, asking me what measures I took to ensure and all my employees were taking active part in corporate social responsibility, which I thought was complete BS because I thought that if people are being made to do it, it's completely wrong. And there's that, that kind of opt-in aspect of it as well, isn't there? What we were doing was just giving money. And so nobody notices that. This got noticed. And I think that thing is different. I mean, people in the company are aware of what we're doing. It's something that's living. It's tangible. In fact, we've had the kids over to the company. We did pumpkin carving. Yeah, Sam, we did a bunch of things like American things. So we did pumpkin carving last Halloween, which was actually, that was a really fun event. I brought my kids for that. It's not just purely for the company. I'm actually encouraging people, bring your husbands, bring your wives, your partners, whatever. It's a good thing to do. I don't want it necessarily to be about the company. I just want it to be about doing something good. Obviously, there's a danger of this podcast turning into a bit of an advert for Argos. And I'd like to move on to sort of like technology trends, what you think about the future of business in the region and particularly for the company and the industry you're in. But just while we're on the sort of like Argos is an awesome company, you got an award for um, or several awards to do with being a, a woman-friendly workplace. One of the reasons to work for Argos is extremely attractive employment conditions. But there's also this sort of like this stuff apart from money. And I'm interested, can you talk about employing women? And because I remember you used to say that this wasn't just a, a question of being progressive. There were real business reasons. Yeah, it's almost laughing. I agree that people, that we get awards for that. But I have to be in all honestly, that's just a side note. Somebody in marketing said, yeah, let's apply for this because we're well positioned to get it. But the truth is that I find it amazing that there's even an issue actually around women in the workplace. Like for me, we had, I'd say half of the managers in the company are women. In fact, there was a period of time early on that it would be like 70 to 80 percent of the company was women. This was never a conscious decision. I never said I'm this like this great pro woman's rights person or something like that. It's just I, I don't want and I'm not trying to say anything bad about men. It's just, it just turned out that the best people were women. We hired the best people. There was never any initiative or any conscious decision to, to hire women, but that's just the way it worked out. There was one issue though, I don't want to upset anyone listening to this who's a, a Polish guy, but you said at some stage we were discussing whether there might be something in Polish culture being rather sort of like, as a country, you know, the communism somehow evened things up, but being quite a traditional country where the boy and the family might be brought up in a slightly yeah, different... Yeah, I don't know how much this applies today. You have to remember, you and I actually, Richard, we've been here a long time and things have changed. They have. Young people today, they're different. So there's generational things. Maybe at one point, I would say, and I, so I'm very, very cautious about any kind of stereotypes and stuff like that. But maybe there was a time back in the early 90s when I would say, yeah, that you'd find that sons were doted upon. And I saw this in my personal life also as well, getting to know families. So sons would be treated with extra reverence and, and daughters had to prove themselves. Maybe at that time, when you had to get through your family as having, you were ambitious and you wanted to prove yourself, you ended up just being better than your, than your brother. As I said, I'm very, very, very like cautious about these are the kind of things that get you into trouble. This is all about being good. I'm being honest. I don't want to say something that's incorrect. The fact is, 
that yes, you're right, at that time, in the early 90s, I definitely had that opinion. <laughs> Very cautiously put, and I do agree, it's, you have to remember things have changed dramatically, and in many ways for the better in the last 20 years since, which was around the time we both arrived in this wonderful country. I'm really interested in, as an American, 21 years, your junior in Poland at least, coming here, I'm, I'm struck by a lot of the same things you were, you know, the beauty of Krakow and the overall business climate in Poland. One of the things that I think is, and this is where I work in my field now, my agency, I think that Poland is still having a problem getting what is an increasingly sophisticated technological product-based economy, they're still having a problem getting those products out to the world. And this actually goes back to our prior conversation when I read a Polish website that has been translated not perfectly into English, or even better yet, it should be originated in English if you're trying to reach the English-speaking market. And it's those subtle things in translation. You know, I'm immediately kind of like, okay, well, this, you know, I can get something from this business for a lot less. There's a value, you know, an inherent value thing in language. Uh, And you're in the communication business. What needs to change in Polish business, marketing material and communications material and sales processes to really go to the next level in the international market? I'm not perfectly positioned, as I said, because of my lack of, I actually don't work. It's, it's funny how isolated I am, even though I'm living here in Krakow. I don't have credible access. Like, I don't have a lot of Polish clients with this problem. But I do think that it is an issue of confidence, actually, on some level. It depends on the size of the company, obviously. If you're a big company, you should be able to hire the right kind of company. Now that I'm thinking about it, I think the real issue is that this comes into the culture of translation as well, is that they might not appreciate that value that you're describing, something that's intuitive. And as a foreigner, you're assessing the quality by what you're reading. And for whatever reason, that might not appear as a value for a Polish business. And I think that that's the thing that needs to get introduced into the culture is that how important it is, how getting that English to sound like it was written by somebody in whatever locale, if it's English for Americans or if it's German, Germany, having that language written so that it can connect with those people. And I think it's the value that may not be placed on that. I think that that is valuable because it's expensive. And so it's like, why should I pay more? I can pay less. And again, I'm also even cautious about generalizing about how current trends in Polish business in Poland, but I do think that it is a cost-based society still predominantly and that cheaper is better. And this is a case where cheaper isn't actually, it actually makes a difference. So Certainly in Polish, there's this word offer to concurrencina, a competitive offer in Polish means cheap. That's how you translate it. And that's not what Goldman Sachs, Goldman Sachs is very competitive. No one ever called them cheap. It's interesting that the subtlety on the translation there, which is competitive, is all based on price. And that's just a linguistic cultural expression that I think doesn't translate into America. It's really interesting that that linguistic idiosyncrasy or just something that doesn't translate, which is competitive meaning cheap that has no English equivalent, which is, I think, very revealing about the business climate. That's a classic translation issue. That's what's so interesting about it. And that's actually why they call it localization and not translation. Localization is the concept of making something local, making something regional, making it feel like that's how you would say it where you're from. And very often, that's a cultural thing. So the question is, what do you really mean? Because you can't really translate it exactly, because as Richard said, competitiveness can mean that it's the lowest possible price. And that's how it's perceived. But so then how do you translate that actually? What does it actually mean? That is an issue. Well, in America, we define competitiveness in an offer as providing the most value. I mean, obviously, price is, is a component of value, but it's not the only part of the equation. We say value for money. 
I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash NBN50 and use code NBN50 to get 50% off. That's code NBN50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50% off. Exactly. Highly competitive countries like Switzerland, they're not cheap, but they're highly competitive. It's a different concept. Within Argos, I know you strongly believe in automation, which is part of being competitive. There's a global trend towards automation. And can you talk about why you think it's so important to be automated within a business and what your attitude is to you know business process uh, optimization automation? From my perspective, I think the world has changed. One of the ways that I think the world has changed is we're all into the software business now. We, I may be running a translation company, so what does that have to do with software? But I've got software developers working in my company and you know, we're, we're working on our own systems, we're working to integrate with other people's systems. And in today's world, you actually have to embrace the fact that you're in the software business. And, you know, and the reason I'm just mentioning that is just in context of your question is, yeah, you have to, our clients are gonna to wanna to be able to do things faster and more efficiently. And in order for us to keep up, we need to find ways to automate our processes. So without that, you're going to die. It's an ongoing process. It's a funny thing that I've learned. Like my budget for this just goes up and up and up. It's not only that it's stabilizing, it's going up all the time. You have to continually invest and you have to invest more and more to stay competitive. I mean, at this point for me, automation and business process optimization, I mean, that's a key for survival. You were describing your sales process, which was knock on the door and go after it. My specialty in business is automating lead generation and as much of the sales process as possible uh, so your salespeople can perform at an optimal level. So I totally agree with you. And that's another area where sometimes because the cost of labor and pull is low, you see companies here not wanting to invest in that. They'd rather hire a few salespeople than automate their sales process where they could get much better leads and quality. And that's, that's one of the challenges I have talking to Polish clients getting automation. That's a great point. Richard and I even have that experience with PMR as well and some of the, we had when in talking to some managers. Very often there was like, let me count how much it costs. Oh no, it's much, it's actually cheaper for me to throw bodies at it. That is faulty thinking because in the short term, it may be cheaper to throw bodies at it, but you're really, you're creating a fundamental flaw in your business. There's also the flip side. Now I'm actually operating on the flip side. I'm like, fill in one field. Do I really need to automate that? You almost have to go the other way. Is it really worth it to spend X number of days on automating this. It is a matter of picking your battles, but it's funny how it can flip from one way to the other. But but I definitely experienced in Poland, and I lived it, in fact, as well. I, I used to throw bodies at problems. So that's a very good point. Well, and the reason I have a lot of knowledge on this, I used to work with a top consultant in the U.S. who automated everything in his personal life and consulted for businesses on their business systems. And I think one of the great points that he made, Ari Mizell, was if a job can be automated, 
then why would you want to pay a human to do something that a computer could do when a human could go do something that's only uniquely human in skill, which is judgment, uh, compassion, empathy, all the different things that artists and salespeople and customer service people do. We shouldn't resent the automation of jobs because no one likes doing jobs that are automated anyway. I run into this all the time in the U.S. This is a funny, because I'm coming in with solutions and people are threatened. People are going to lose their jobs. That's what they think. And this is where companies need to do a good job saying what you're saying. You're going to do something that's more value add than what you're currently doing. But you should have resistance to automation out of a feeling of being threatened. I've encountered that at clients in the US, but I've also encountered that here, whatever, in my company as well. I mean, people are threatened by the fact they say, well, what am I gonna do if you're gonna automate that? And that is the problem with globalization, which we're on the, the winning side of it right now in Eastern Europe, is there is real consequences when jobs go away. It's, it's not as easy to, to sell someone, go from working on the factory floor to being a creative salesperson. That's exactly, it's exactly. Well, I mean, here in Krakow, many of our American listeners are very aware, probably more aware of Uber than local people, because Uber's not so big here in, in Europe yet, but Uber set up its customer service center here in Krakow, but to order a taxi, an Uber car is a totally automated process. There's no human involved at all. So if you're one of these ladies or men whose job it is to pick up the phone and call a taxi and ask if he's free, that job is being automated away. There's no question, but it's inevitably and everywhere you find the most high-tech countries in the world, whether it's Norway, Switzerland, Singapore, these are places with high employment because people are adding lots of value compared to the near Bangladesh or no offense to any automated Bangladeshers out there. I know there are some very sophisticated companies in Bangladesh, but you know, it tends to be the low productivity countries that have the low employment. It's going to be a threat to some people, but it's also a reality of the world. It's not going to go away. It needs to be, basically needs to be embraced. And that's really what I'm saying in the context, just coming full circle to what Sam was saying. That's something that needs to be embraced in Poland. And then again, I'm not sure to what extent it isn't, but you know, the tendency can be to throw bodies at the problem for sure. I remember for years, you were talking about automation in different businesses we've been involved in together. What other trends do you think, if you look at the world, your kids are growing up in one's very new, one's just in college now, but so you get the full spectrum of sort of imagining right. what, what the world's like now compared to how when we were a little bit younger than we are today, or indeed like the world they're going to be growing up in. What do you think the most important things sort of changes are and where are we going to be in 10, 15 well, years from now? Clearly, artificial intelligence is going to continue to grow and, and in our area, and this actually ties back into automation. The the big question in our business is can artificial intelligence ever get to the point where it could translate? Because the translation is such a human, innate human activity. But the truth is, probably at some point they'll get there. And, and it's the same with a lot of different things. C3PO, uh, you guys know Star Wars. He was the uh, universal I, I, translator. I yeah, mean, that's that was my uncle George, right? <laughs> I have a 21-year-old, and her life is already completely different than my life was. Seven-week-old, and her life is going to be... I can't even imagine what her life is going to be like. Honestly, from a technology point of view, let's be honest, it's hard to imagine exactly 20, 30 years forward. And this goes back to actually what we were talking about is threat. So we were just talking a little bit about the artificial intelligence actually doing translation at some point. But I actually don't see that as a threat in the translation business because you're always going to need companies that are going to know how to deploy the technology, how to integrate the technology. It's not going to just be like, oh yeah, let's plug in artificial intelligence to translate and it's just do everything. There's going to be a role for, let's say, integrators, masters of deploying the technology. So that's where you have to adapt. And I think that's really, if you want to take a lesson out of that, I think you have to be ready to adapt. It it may be tougher to adapt factory floor. That may be you have to get different education and stuff like that. But as a business, I think that's the key to survival in business is you need to be able to adapt. 
And that's the takeaway, at least for me, when it comes to technology. Timo, can you talk about the place of Krakow and what you think is good or not so good about being here? Because a lot of people listening, you know, they, one of our objectives is to somewhat boost the area up, but not going beyond what's true and fair. Could you give your take uh, on... I can give an honest, I don't even need to go into promo mode at all here, because Krakow is, let's just tackle it from various different levels, but just start at the... Just pure physical beauty, I'd say it's top, it's, it's, it's definitely a top 10 European city. Just, I mean, it's totally enchanting. You know what an awesome benefit is for me? Again, luck, 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 luck. Having my business founded here, I bring my clients here. And whether they're from the US or even, I mean, particularly from the US and Sam, you can probably, if an American hasn't been to Europe and then they come to Krakow, it's like, holy cow. Feels and like Disneyland. <laughs> But even, exactly. But even for Europeans, like I had my, the people we work with at John Deere, like our direct clients are actually German and they, they just, they're blown away by it as well. It is a really beautiful city and then it's got a great vibe. It's a university town, it's young, it's fun. And then like, I, again, from a business point of view, more and more, I guess you guys have probably covered this in the past, but I mean, there's tons of you know, BPOs here, business process outsourcing, which means that there are a lot of young people that have been trained and the job market is a very, very, very uh, attractive job market, I think, for professional service companies, which is what, what we are, basically. If you want to hear a drawback, yeah, the smog level is, is, I'd say that's probably, and that's another thing that probably everybody talks about. So everybody probably has heard this before. That's not, I don't like to have to check my phone if I want to go for a run. <laughs> that annoys me. <laughs> that's the only thing that, that bugs me, I, I'd say, at this point. That's great. I think it's always good to hear it from different sources, though, because the more people who say it, the more it's probably true. And what about the future of the business? Obviously, business is always driven by clients, but where do you see the company being in five or ten years time when I'm talking about Argos now it's going to be big we are just starting down the path we've done one successful acquisition and we're just starting down this path of making acquisitions to grow the business so I see us potentially exponentially actually growing in the next five to ten years you've always warned me not to give away too much to the public but this is your moment to define what you can say about the size of Argos in terms of dollars or like how big is the company and how big will it be I want to know what the official version is it's like I never know what I'm allowed to say we don't disclose yeah I'm not sure I guess different people have different lifestyles and it could be a workaholic lifestyle or but it is also so in terms of the entrepreneurial journey, I remember our first meeting in a one-room apartment on Ulitsa Sarego in the center of Krakow, where there were two companies. Both of them are significant companies that are known. They're not maybe known in Poland because the clients are abroad, but they're significant companies. Humor is actually a very well-known company in Poland. The funny thing is that it's like so... Take Translation is not the sexiest sort of business. It so totally flies under the radar. I remember early on, people were just like, I remember there was somebody quoted something about uh, HP spending more money on toilet paper than they spent on translation. It's just a, you know, I don't care. I'm not in it for the ego ride or whatever. It's a very interesting business to be in. It is crazy though, Richard, when you go back. Argos did start with one person, me. So that might sound funny, but it's just like, I'm a very now focused person. Not that nostalgic either. I don't, so I don't spend a lot of brain energy trying to remember all the great battles and victories well, and defeats yeah. and stuff like that. I prefer to just focus on now. And I think that's actually a key. Just to remind you, sometimes you've thanked your loyal staff and your clients, competitors. What haven't we covered in this interview or came on other things that you, we haven't covered that you think are important? The only thing we don't know, which I'm very fascinated by, and I'll Full disclosure is Richard's ROI off of his investment. <laughs> oh, I want to know that too. I want to. I would love to do that calculation. 
What was it? It was uh, tw- was it twenty? It was fifty thousand dollars. I say I we say it. Well, sorry, I said it already. So <laughs> I think we didn't keep very good records back then. But it was fifty k, wasn't it? The first time it was twenty, and then I think there was some twenty and twenty five. Then was some more. But we were doing the uh, Shina deal with PMR at the same time, and I remember because I think it was Argos first. Anyway, the really funny part of the story is whatever. Let's say it was forty fifty k, whatever it was, and you can calculate the ROI, Sam. But the craziest part of the story is he was a maniac. He overpaid by like, like crazy overpaid, like a complete maniac. That was the craziest investment, actually. Like, I just was some guy. <laughs> you gave me 50K. And then it turned into this. It's just a hilarious. What did you see? How did you make that investment? I saw the person, the client, and I didn't have any of the protections that you should have to do with regulating the, the amount you paid yourself. For example, I didn't know about that. I was complete amateur. But the truth is, for anyone listening, and this is stuff that comes back again and again and again, that if you can invest in a healthy business, it's almost worth paying any amount. Because at the time I invested, it was more than annual revenue. It was something crazy, Richard. It really was. <laughs> no, but you know, I, obviously if I'd bought Google stock it would be worth no, more. I took the highest valuation I could possibly think of and then I like doubled it and then I probably doubled it again and I said yes <laughs> that's what I told you you said okay yes but I'm more experienced as an investor now but it, looking back on it it always comes down to investing in people who are capable of developing an organization which works and you know a lot of people aren't even if the idea is great and then, at Sarago you looked in my eyes and you just knew it <laughs> <laughs> yeah but I also looked at well, I could listen to a number of other people who, into whose eyes I looked and I knew it and they've got and says my money. In terms of the dividends, I don't think Argos has been pumping out dividends. It's much more capital appreciation, isn't it? I guess so. I mean, now, I don't know how far... <laughs> should we reveal the last the 15 years of <laughs> I just want to know when Richard's going to be able to retire, that's all. So. Yeah, well, yeah, exactly. Well, I think Richard is retired. I, as far as I can tell, he's retired, Sam. <laughs> <laughs> I just know he was working incredibly hard this last year, but that's another... Right, one. when this podcast comes out, he's no longer the CEO of anything, so I think he's... Once again, I think we can safely say he's retired. You will retired, Richard, for your information, dear Project Cashmere's listener and co-host <laughs> and business partner. At 7 p.m. yesterday evening, I was having a meeting with a, a startup I'm involved in, and we were scheduling a weekly call, which I wouldn't have felt was appropriate while I was being the CEO of another company, because I actually enjoy, believe it or not, I enjoy doing what I do, and it's different with every business. But, and you know, one of the things I've learned in business, one of the most important lessons is when somebody starts to really talk up that they're really busy. <laughs> I'm totally messing with you. Could you talk about your background and what your dog's name? Because I'm Fontaine, it doesn't sound entirely American. Yeah, exactly, Sam. It's like the inside information. I don't know what else. You can air some really dirty laundry here as well. <laughs> yeah, I haven't even started. <laughs> You're being really nice. You're going around like nice stuff. Why don't you just go like straight for like the really bad stuff right away? My father immigrated to the U.S. from Greece. So I'm actually half Greek. I speak uh, fluent Greek. I love Greece. That's why the name is very Greek. Kimo Fontikidis, even though Richard's struggling with remembering my first name. You're not the only one, don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> my dog was called Argos. So that's where the company name came from. And Argos, some people get the real story, but other people I can sometimes you know, pivot and say, it's Ulysses' dog was called Argos. And I don't know if you know the story of Ulysses' dog, but you know, Ulysses went on his travels and right over 20 years and he was a puppy when he left and he came back, he was all haggard and he had a beard and stuff like that. And nobody recognized him except his faithful dog, Argos, who came up to him and laid at his feet and died because he was obviously 20 years old. Uh, but he waited for his master. So then, you know, I can say, yeah, and we're a loyal, faithful company.
I would like to say thank you very much for finding the time to do this interview and also thank you for accepting my insane investment 25 years ago. <laughs> I'd say thank you, Richard. No, actually, honestly, I do appreciate you as a shareholder. I could have done so much worse. You've been a very, very supportive and you've added value through the years. So I appreciate you as well. Well, thank you very much, Simon, for joining us. It was great to hear some historical perspective from another American doing what I've doing or doing what I've done uh, 20 years in advance, which is adopt Poland and Krakow specifically as a home. And thanks for the great insights on your company. I'm glad to hear, Richard, you're well secured because of your efforts. Also, your outlook on the complexity and the nuance of language in doing international business. I think that's a great lesson for anyone listening to this is don't skimp on your translation and your investment really in localization rather than translation. And I love that term and I'm going to steal it and use it. And finally, on automation and everything else, it's been a very insightful episode. And thank you, Project Kashmir's listener, for joining us for another episode of Season 2 here. And we have a lot more coming for you shortly and look forward to seeing you next time. Thank you for listening to this episode. This episode was produced by Adam Zuba, sound editing by Maciek Majeski, show notes by James Matheson, and transcription by Thomas Severin. To find the show notes and all the other things mentioned with the podcast, go to our website, projectkajimej.com. You can also sign up there for our newsletter and get notified of the release of our future episodes right on your email inbox. If you feel that you're getting great value from this podcast, we'd love it if you'd leave us a review on our iTunes channel. It certainly mean a lot to us and will help other people find out about this information and help grow the ecosystem in Central Eastern Europe. Thank you again. Talk to you soon with my co-host, Richard Lucas. This episode is brought to you by James Cook Media. I founded James Cook Media when I moved to Poland. James Cook Media is a full-service digital marketing and sales agency. Our mission is to bring world-class products to the global English-speaking market. The thing that I've noticed in Poland is how many amazing, talented companies there are building great products, and they're struggling to get traction in the international English-speaking market. I think that's a shame, and I want to help these companies get their products to the market. Silicon Valley parlance, you would call us growth hackers. My team of specialists that I've trained from the beginning here in Poland builds from scratch custom marketing funnels. This includes ideal customer visualization and profiling, complete branding, visual identity, videos, music, a website and landing page copywriting, landing page and website design, marketing video commercials, sales videos, testimonial videos, as well as custom written music podcast productions like this one. Content marketing, search engine optimization, website optimization, and paid media traffic, campaign design, management, as well as optimization and Instagram ads. So that's a lot, but I've been doing marketing online now for over 10 years in multiple industries from e-commerce to tourism to software as a service, digital publishing, money transfer apps, and online sports marketing. Over the course of this time, I founded two separate companies as well as worked for loads of clients all over the world, and I had to learn every part of online marketing. I came to Poland to build my own in-house marketing team for my last business, and I'll tell you that the talent here is absolutely world-class, as good as any marketing talent you would find in New York City. I personally design my campaigns, write the copy, direct the videos, do the setup with the project manager, and a full-time team of specialists of designers, developers, ad managers, and optimizers to fully manage from start to finish 
your marketing so you can focus on your product and your business. If you think you'd like to learn more about my company and what we may be able to do for you, go to jamescook.pl and enter your information. You will also find information about meetups that I'm running with Ava Vysotska of Good Tribe Consulting where you can learn all about the latest in marketing strategy and techniques. Even when I work with clients, I make sure that they completely understand my marketing philosophy and strategy so that they can have buy-in and ownership of it. Because as a business owner, you always need to completely own your strategy for getting your product to market. But we help you do it. If you're a startup or an investor from outside of Poland and you're interested in visiting Krakow Warsaw's startup scene in Poland or even moving here to set up your team, James Cook Media also offers high-level concierge services to help companies get set up here. I moved to Poland because I believe East is the new West. For 400 years, brave, intrepid entrepreneurs have been going West to the U.S. and the American West for prospecting. Now San Francisco and California is so overpriced and so expensive. The new digital gold rush, as I call it, where you can get the most value for your money in terms of investment is here in Eastern Europe, where you have world-class engineering talent, designers, video makers, artists, graphic artists, and marketers. You can do New York City agency or San Francisco level coding work for a very competitive price. If you're interested to learn more, please go to the website jamescook.pl, enter your information, and we'll give you more information about how we might be able to help you. You know, vision is all great and well, but execution is actually the key. The actual process of meeting those people, working with them, is in itself a huge reward. Interaction between the university and the business and high-tech community is absolutely fundamental. Diversity creates a healthy ecosystem, and I think that I'm seeing more and more that diversity. It's not just about individuals, but about new individuals. It's about, you know, um, new initiatives. Sometimes they overlap with each other. Sometimes they might be cannibalizing each other. But the reality is that you want to have as many as possible because that accelerates the big picture. We're not going to have everyone in the world here. And in this connected world, we don't need everyone here. But, but the, you know, the artists and the designers, the creatives, they're very much part of what, we, what we've got and what we need. So if you're listening again somewhere else in the world and you feel you, you're looking for a place where your, your, your creative juices will run, then, then, then this city is certainly a place where you can find yourself. And I think you can make history in Poland. I think you can be part of something much bigger than you could be a part of in the United States right now. Not just from a, you know, going out to San Francisco to make Silicon Valley richer, but but making a new part of the world um, grow at a much faster rate, be a much bigger part of that community, and, and making it wealthy, not just for wealth's sake, but for uh, a purpose, which is to make that country's government stronger. Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.